Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about development, but we're talking about it from the publishing standpoint. we got Alan Emmerich, founder of Victory Point Games, on the show. And Alan, just really appreciate you coming on. Gabe, it's an honor. Thank you. Yeah, we've had a couple of your designers come on the show in the past and talk about their games and all that, but I'm excited to hear from you as the founder, as the guy that's kind of pulling the levers, so to speak, looking at development from that side. But just in case people don't know who you are, tell me your background. Tell people kind of how you got into games and all that good stuff. Um, Well, uh, back in the early 1970s, when I was in what they call middle school today, junior high school in my day, I, I got a junk mail flyer. And of course, being a bored teenager, you read your junk mail. And it said Strategy and Tactics Magazine, the military history magazine with, and then you opened up the flyer and it said a game in it. Ooh, a game (laughs) in a magazine. Wow. Well, after uh, doing a hard sell convincing my my parents to let me subscribe to this uh, hugely expensive $5 an issue magazine, Uh, I discovered some war games in my buddy's garage and started my S&T subscription. One thing led to another. By, uh, I started volunteering to play test for SPI and started my own little game company in the 1980s, became a, a vice president of the Game Manufacturers Association. I hosted the game conventions. I'm the founder of the LA Game Conventions out here, uh, which run three times a year still to this day after 40-some years. And... Um, Hosted Origins a couple of times. My last full-time gig um, was being a game design and project management teacher at the Art Institutes of Orange County. Um, so, yeah, I've been around games my whole life. It's been the center of gravity and around which I orbit. Yeah. Now, the game company you just mentioned that you started, was that Victory Point Games that you started way back when, or is that something else? No, 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 no. Back in the 1980s, that was Diverse Talents Incorporated. It was like kind of named after all of the people who helped make the company work, you know, accountants and artists and everybody else. Um, and that was a lot of fun. But uh, we, we merged that into 3W and 3W went under. And well, that's the game business for you. Yeah. In fact, at that point, I swore I would never start another game company. But when I was teaching, my students really needed job experience. And I would send them off to the local Orange County uh, game companies, mostly computer game companies, and they would work them 40, 60 hours. These, these are full-time students. You can't work a full-time student 60 hours at a job. They would come back to class half dead, marked no blood because the companies had sucked it all out of them. <laughs> and so I started my own game company just to give them experience, you know, hands-on stuff, uh, help with the accounting, here, help with the marketing, learn, learn all about a game company, not just your narrow focus, but you're, everybody does everything. Let's go. And uh, that's how Victory Point Games got started. Gotcha. So it really started as a way to develop people more than to develop games. Uh, As a matter of fact, we were very surprised when we had finished producing and manufacturing a game and then looked at each other and said, well, now what do we do? (laughs) So, So then we had to figure out how to market and distribute these games, which were a byproduct of what we were actually trying to do, which is learn how to do what we've done. Yeah, well, that's a really cool way for a company to get started. But tell me kind of... Like once you started figuring that out, let's talk about Victory Point Games just for a moment, just to kind of give people some background. So once you figured out, like, okay, now we have a company, now what do we do? What was that? What was that next step as far as getting into the marketing and distribution channels and all that? Well, we started as a uh, print-on-demand game company and stayed that way until very recently. We began by manufacturing, you know, the games in house. We started with an inkjet printer and uh, an Ellison, you know, uh, steel-ruled hand-pressed die cutter and. Um, <clears throat> just made really small games in poly bags, Ziploc bags. And uh, and they found a, a niche. They were mostly war games. So we did not start only with war games. We, we diversified and r- branched out and made non-traditional strategy games and card games, family games. We, we tried a little bit of everything. And we still have a pretty diverse product line, although 
you know, war games are the backbone and the staple, and, and we we love them dearly. I mean, that's where I got started for crying out loud. Right. But um, basically, once you put your games out there, the the next thing you hear is the complaints of customers who wish your games were something other than what you publish. <laughs> right. Typically, because we were low end print on demand, inkjet printing, you know, hand pressed die cuts, everybody wanted higher quality components. And we realized that everybody liked our gameplay because you could really see the passion that we took developing games. I mean, we really wanted them to be great. We wanted tight rules and everything else. But there was a plenty to scoff at the components because, you know, we weren't printed overseas in some mega print run, you know, hard box version game. And eventually it got to us. And so we, we upgraded printers and then we upgraded the counters from die cutting to laser cutting and we upgraded from bags to our own little like pizza boxes with a sleeve and every time we made an upgrade the complaints increased <laughs> of course <laughs> um because now we reached more people right new people and new people said what you know oh you have laser cut counters they're terrible they're they're sooty they're, they're, they stink you know all right oh god so every time we made an improvement, we got more grief. And now we print games like every other company. You know, we go to the big printer and mass production. And the complaints are still there. Right. You know, so it's like, well, I, I took that whole long road and learned all of those things to not have ever left the space I was on when I started. But, I, you know, I've learned that now. You get different. And now that we've lost the, the laser cutters, we've let them go. We've gotten rid of all the print-on-demand stuff. Everybody's saying, oh, but I want the laser cut pieces back. They were so nice and thick. And I like, ah, can't win. Yeah. It's going. Just don't don't uh, look back. Keep going forward. Right. Now, I know one thing I was impressed by. This is a number of years ago. But the, the first Victory Point game I ever bought was actually Circus Train, one of my favorite games. And I was I didn't realize it when I bought it, uh, but you know it came in the mail and it had this sleeve. And I was like, oh, it's got a sleeve, and open it up. And it had just the generic Victory Point box on it, you know, the, mm -hmm. the normal box. And I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Like this makes so much sense as a company to save money uh, to do it this way. And I, I thought it was a really cool uh, idea. And so you know, I know I know a lot of people. You know, they didn't like the laser cut, and it did smell like a campfire when you opened the box. But it's it, who cares? It's a game. Like. You, it's something to enjoy. It's a game. You know, we're not buying like a brand new car. If your new car smelled like a uh, campfire on the inside, okay, fine. But this was a, you know, $20, $30, $40 game. Uh, and I get it from a business standpoint. So I don't know. I, I was I was okay with it. And that red pizza box said the gameplay is the thing. We wanted you to focus on the gameplay. Yeah. Get your mind off the components. They are functional. They do work. But it's really about the, and that's always been that way for the company. And I'll let you into a little publisher secret. You brought me here wearing my publisher hat. When you open a box for a game, you have just touched the most expensive single component in that game. Really? The box. Huh. Yeah, it is amazing uh, how expensive boxes are. Right. And it's so devastating when when you hear from a customer who says my box got crushed corner and i want a replacement box well i mean they're they're right and they they are certainly entitled to it, and we send them a replacement box but oh how painful mm. it is to have to break open a game dump out all the components which we will use for spare parts and send them back an empty box right again <laughs> Um, that is that is a, a publisher. It's all on a publisher's day, but you know it's just like so discouraging that the the postal elephant sits on your game box and crushes it. Right. I, I, it's just heartbreaking, and that's the most expensive part. I mean, you look at anything else in the game. You know, this is a you know when it's mass produced, it's a fifteen cent component or a four cent component or you know fifty cent whatever. But the box is like that is expensive. There's a there's a lot of hand making in those boxes, and uh, they they're labor intensive and they cost it. Yeah, well, I'm interested to hear some more about just kind of those publishing thoughts. Because when you're developing a game, you have to think about this: how big is the box going to be? How much is it going to cost? And so, but real quick, I want to hear just one other thing. So you're allegedly the guy that came up with the 4x 
uh, <laughs> idea, right? Not necessarily the idea, but you coined the phrase 4X. And so yep. kind of give me the background on that. Where did, where'd you come up with that? And if you're wondering what 4X means, it's like a game like Eclipse, right? And what it, remind me what the 4Xs are, but kind of tell me how that came to be. All right. Here's the 4X story. Uh, back in the 90s, I was an editor at Computer Gaming World magazine, which was a very uh, large, circulated, respected, uh, popular uh, PC computer gaming magazine. And I was reviewing Master of Orion, and I was discussing the computer game Master of Orion, which I was fortunate to have previewed and have been a playtester of and a proponent for and, and kind of helped develop. And I was very excited about this game because, and I'm discussing it with my buddy Tom Hughes, we, you know, he said, oh, this is kind of like a 4X game. And so I wrote that in the article, 4X for explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate. That is, you begin the game in an unknown world which you explore. You expand to try and grab all of the good stuff that's near you and, and hunker down. And then you start to exploit all of those resources that you found so you can build up your forces and then go exterminate all your opponents in a soul survivor game. And that's where 4X came from. And then uh, that article uh, became someone's doctoral thesis, the whole <laughs> Theory of the 4X game, and he wrote his his thesis on that and contacted me. He says, I got this from your article. Do you have a copy of that article? I said, oh, I don't have back issues of old computer gaming worlds, but I know somebody who might. And I got him a, a scan of the article, and he was so happy. Oh, my God. It was like, uh, you know, the whole orphanage at Christmas, and everybody got toys. He was so happy. <laughs> to get that article and, and put the cherry on top of his doctoral thesis. And so to this day, I'm known as the 4X guy because I first coined the phrase and put it out there publicly. Gotcha. Well, it's just kind of funny how these things come together like that. And it's always these random, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened, and now you're the guy that came up with 4X. You know, it's funny how that all works out. But let's, let's move on into the actual topic of the show. Let's talk about development. Tell me your definition of development. Because I've talked to some other people, they've given me theirs, but what's your definition? Well, design is the game vision and taking notes about the game's vision. Maybe building a prototype, pushing some pieces around, pre-alpha testing, you know, before you really send it off to the group. That's what a designer does. The designer is there to work out all the big kinks and put in all the big ideas. The developer takes that and narrows the funnel, uh, tries to get things boiled down, refined, working with the publisher to come out of the bottom end of the funnel with exactly what's required to send to the art department to turn into a game that can be manufactured. So if you're lucky, the designer will know what those specifications are and design to those specifications. What I have learned developing and publishing games is that you often get the best of a designer when you get the least of a designer. Okay. And I'm not saying they have bad breath or BO or anything like that. What I'm saying is the more you constrain the components available to a designer, the cleverer they get using them. Ah. And, um, and this is this is a particular lesson I learned courtesy of Joe Miranda, who can, you know, create a monster game of epic proportions and zillions of counters and, and books of rules. He could do that. But, you know, when, when I told Joe, we're making small format games, you've got an 11 by 17 map, you got 100 counters, you got, you know, 12 pages of rules. What are you going to do with that, Joe? And he would pick epic topics and come up with amazing systems that were constrained by those publishing restrictions. And, boy, did he come up with some brilliant stuff. It, Zulu's on the Ramparts to this day from Joseph Miranda is still one of our best-selling games ever because he condensed himself down. He did such a smashing job with it. Yeah, and that's a great point. In the old saying, it proves to be true, necessity is the mother of all invention, right? And so when you tell somebody, hey, you can only use 
X, right? And Y and Z and all that are pretty, but there is no Y or Z. There's only X. And you have to figure this out. It's amazing how clever people are, you know, what they're able to come up with. And so, all right, thinking through that as a, as a publisher, right? So walk me through the process. So a designer approaches you with a game, and now what? Kind of walk me through that start-to-finish process of the, the next phase of that development, of developing that design. Okay, well, to, to finish the last topic, if you don't give a designer constraints, their voyage of design is a voyage of discovery that goes right out into the weeds, and who knows when they'll get back from the fall <laughs> right. grass. Ten years later, uh, they finally finish, right? <clears throat> right, and uh, well, and some games take that long because the designers got to explore those places. And Jim Dunnigan teaches us that a game is never finished, right. only published. Um, because the designer, that will always be their baby. There's always something more they can do. They would always long to do an expansion kit or a second edition or, or a new printing where they could fix this. It never leaves you. The designer is always has those parental instincts, and that game was never quite done. There's always more that could have been done. Right. But when we get a design, basically we, we will meet with the designer first to see if we're interested and kind of get a feel for what it is. And then we will seek a developer for that design. We tell the uh, designer, we don't want it until there's nothing more you can do with it. Hmm. We don't want it while you're still messing around, while you're still exploring and experimenting. If, if you're there, you can talk to us. We'll answer questions. We'll try and help guide you. But until you reach the point where you say, there's nothing more I can do with this. Right now, I have to hand it over to someone else. That's when we want it. Then we will seek a developer for it. You need to find a developer who is really interested in it. And hopefully you find one who communicates well with the designer to get the vision thing. You know, whenever they need a download of the vision thing, they can get that from the designer. But the developer has to look at this and be in cahoots with the publisher and say, okay, how many counters, what size, do I have different shapes to play with? What about the cards? You know. Give me those parameters, and now let's see where I stub my toe playtesting this game, getting it developed. The um, designer has to do the pre-alpha testing. The developer takes it through alpha testing, which means in-house testing. You know, our, our crack playtesters, people we know, people we trust, people who have the designer's phone number on speed dial, and try and take out as many more you know, lumps from the gravy as they can and uh, make it as smooth as possible. When your in-house testers have really found everything they're going to find and they've got the systems working and smooth and they're happy with them, now it's time for beta testing. And this is where the developer has got to release it more broadly. they got to put out a print and play or a Vassal module or whatever they're going to do and have people literally blind test the game. People who have never seen the game before, bam, hit with it like a brand new customer. And listening to their complaints, as opposed to a new customer's complaints, is what you aim to fix. The most critical thing from a publishing standpoint is what happens to that beta tester during the first 15 minutes they encounter and then 15 minutes they play the game? Because those are the crucial minutes. Those are the minutes where they decide if this game is for them or if they're going to return. It only takes about 15 or 20 minutes before you know whether or not you like that game. Right. It doesn't take that long. Games, by their nature, are repetitive. You do the same things in a turn, kind of like over and over again, or even in a real-time game. You go through the same motions and, and do the same kinds of whatever you're doing over and over again. The, the context may change, but the mechanics are pretty much set in your mind after a few minutes. And you'll know whether or not that game's for you or if this is a, an interesting thing you want to explore further. You will know on first contact, you know, what you think the learning curve is, uh, what the game's graphics feel like to you, what the ergonomics are like as you set it up. You'll know that all before you play. And once you start playing, you're going to learn uh, how easy it is to play, you know, how quick you can grok it, how you can make things work what kind of decisions you're making in the game. Do they offer interesting trade-offs? You'll know all of that really quick. And so that's the job of a beta tester, to give you their impression of those first few minutes from first encounter to first play. And then they are there to fix all the little things they find wrong. 
Well, on page 28, there's a spelling error. All the, this isn't entirely clear. Do you mean this or do you mean that? Ah, well, we better fix that. Do you believe that you should put this table on a player aid because right now it's in the rule book and I have to look it up? Yes. Publisher Philosophy 101 at Victory Point Games. Once you learn the game, please, God, never make the player open the rule book unless they're really stuck. Everything should be on a player aid or on the back of the rule book or something in front of you so that a steady player can just kind of continue playing and not open up the game once they know how to play it. You know, the, the rules, they don't need no more. Uh, that's, that's if we're really doing our job. We're, we always strive for that. So that's what a developer's got to do is get the game to survive first contact with the enemy, uh, not the enemy, <laughs> player. <laughs> Sorry, too much von Clausewitz. And, um, Get it, get, get it to that point where all the new players it will survive first contact with after the game is published. It won't because, you know, five playtesters, 50 playtesters, 500 playtesters won't be enough to find all of the errors that 5,000 customers are going to find. Right. And they always ask the same thing. Did you ever set this game up? I mean, there's an error right here in the setup instructions. Ah! Yeah. yeah, yeah, we set it up a bunch, and yep, there's a typo right there. How embarrassing. <laughs> and, you know, it's, what are you going to do? You just, good publisher relations, you know, I love gamers, gaming, and games in that order. The people who play games are the best people. The hobby, gaming, is the best hobby because it's the most fun and interesting and social. And the games are great because they're fascinating. They're full of, of, of puzzles and situations and, and things that, that make your mind's wheels turn. And I love all of that. But it really begins with the gamer. That, that is just like the most coolest, important person I can meet. Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense as a designer to really think of that, that hierarchy in that order, right? Think about... The gamer, who is going to experience this? Maybe you have some really fun mechanic in your game, but if it's not really enjoyable, you know, it doesn't really enhance the experience for the gamer, it doesn't need to be in there. And I think that's really a, a good way to to look at how the how the design should should work out as well. Well, you know, I tell my designers, you gotta think about two things here with the gamer. You gotta think about what your game is inflicting on that gamer. Hmm. How much you're making them work, how far you're making them reach, how many times they gotta roll a reshuffle, what they see in front of their eye. What is your game inflicting on that gamer? And then turn around and see it from the game table up. What is that gamer inflicting on your game? What did you leave in the game space for the player to decide? You know, did you set up the fences so they can't just kind of make things up as they go along. Have you, have you established enough? I mean, is your game inflicting things on them and are they inflicting things on your game? You gotta kind of see that as a two-way street and think about that experience. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and so tell me about your developers. Now, do you have guys like in-house on your staff or do you go out and get consultants and kind of contract people out? How do you approach that as the development, like that job? The short answer, yes. <laughs> The longer answer is we just closed our in-house. We closed down the factory on Harbor Boulevard just south of Disneyland. And we are now a virtual game company. Okay. So everybody uh, works from their their home office, although most of us are still in Southern California, so we do get together from time to time. Playtesting has moved back into uh, VPG headquarters at my home. And that's where people come by and playtest. And our developers, you know, we have the, the old in-house developers who are now the out-of-house developers, and they know exactly what to do. And we're still, with, we train new developers, we train new designers. We we will work with new people. If they've got the right idea for a game and they are, you know, willing to say, gee whiz, you know, let's, uh, this is so cool, let's make a game. Well, I'll work with those. Here, we just completed a Kickstarter for Renegade, uh, a new game from a new designer Ricky Royal, whose videos many people have seen on YouTube, you know, his game reviews and stuff. But this was his first crack at game design. And let me tell you, he was a very obviously very intelligent. He knows his games. 
But he was so enthusiastic and his energy was infectious and he was so patient uh, as a designer getting through the development process until, you know, the, the, the sticks were rubbed sufficiently where we got a spark and the spark finally made a, a small flame and the flame grew to a fire. But boy, at the end of a project, the designer is just, he's got to hang on with both hands because things go so fast. Um, you know, it's like being on a submarine, you know, days of tedium and boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. <laughs> and uh, that that's what it's like as the publishing deadline closes. Yeah. Sheer terror. But Ricky was great. I would work with him again on anything. He was so helpful. He was so fast replying to questions. I mean, that was a, a crackerjack designer. Good job, Ricky. Awesome. And so let's talk about the, the playtesting. You mentioned playtesting a good bit. Walk me through your system. Like how... How you get playtesters on board? How you know how you bring people into your house? Uh, but more than that, like the system of of taking notes, right? And and uh, taking note of okay, this rule it doesn't work. This is feels a little bit broken. This needs to be cleaned up. Like how do you how do you get all that data into something that's actually usable? Well, it's typically the developer's job to take notes and to ponder their implications, to consider changes, and then very carefully and thoughtfully make them. If it's any kind of change in the design direction, they typically do that in cahoots with the designer. But, you know, if it's fixing a sentence, or the, you know, eh, you don't need to bother designers with that. But that's that's the job of the developer to, to kind of watch the playtesting. And, you know, that's probably the hardest part about being the developer or the designer is to watch people play that prototype and shut up. Because you want to say, oh, no, 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 you're doing that wrong. Oh, no, 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 You can't do that. You know, oh, I would move my guy here. Mm, 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 mm. No, stop it. Be quiet. Observe. You will learn more through observation than, than explanation. Once, you know, answer their rules questions, but let them figure out how things integrate in the game, how things interrelate, what makes it tick, the implications of their decisions, you know, that's that's something a player does as a hard lesson. But, you know, in fact, the, the coolest thing about observing people play is reading their faces. You know, back when I was at Interplay, we set up one-way glass and watched people play our computer games. Yeah. We couldn't see what was on the monitor. Well, there was a mirror behind it. We kind of could. But we were looking at their faces. And you would see the smile, you would see the frown, you would see the light bulb go off over their head, you would see the question mark appear over their head. And then you try and figure out where in the game they were that made that happen. And boy, as a, as a producer at Interplay, I learned a lot about the value of playtesting and reading the body language and facial expressions of your testers. Often you can gauge how well a game is going just by the volume of noise in the room you know, what people are talking about. All of those intangibles, as it were, really make a game that's got gameplay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, how do you find these playtesters? Do you have some kind of system to bring playtesters in? Oh, well, I've been in Southern California my whole life. I, I know a bunch of people. I still go to my conventions three times a year and meet others. And uh, we hear from people in, you know, email and you know, all forums and stuff all the time. So uh, you try and catch out the ones who are answering forum questions very intelligently. Um, you know, this person clearly knows your game, your philosophy, whatever, and uh, see if you can connect with them. You know, at least meet them when you travel to other game conventions if they're going to be there and stuff. But playtesters, we got kind of a regular group. And I'll tell you, what is it, Google meetups or meetup groups or some, you know, these online things. That's really a good way to find folks. Yeah. Um, you know, go to the local club, talk to people, see who's interested in your prototypes, friends of friends, that sort of thing. Yeah. All right, now let's switch gears a bit. As a publisher, what are you really thinking about as you're developing a game? You know, as far as like cost and marketing, shipping, all that good stuff. Like what are you, what are you really thinking about for a Victory Points game? Uh, well, now that we're, we're mass-producing games... We can't just make small title, short print run things and, and take our lumps anymore. Hmm. We, we have to sell more than a few hundred to be okay. Right. So step one is identify 
the target market for this game? Is it a large market? Is it a game that that market knows and loves? If it's a game that we have to explain to them, if it's a game where they have to know a long fictional backstory that is not popular genre that we license like Star Wars or Harry Potter, which of course we will never license because of the cost, <laughs> that's a problem. It's really a problem when you have to explain a bunch of stuff before people will buy a game. Hmm. If they can't connect that game with a few key words, solo, co-op, strategy, war, history, you know, if they if there aren't a few key words, the mechanics, you know, hex encounter or uh, pick up and deliver, if those few key words don't mean something to that gamer and you really have to explain what this game is, unless it's a party game, you're you're up against it. You it's tough to take a game into Target or Barnes and Noble, which we're not in, by the way. Uh, but we would like to be. So, you know, we always have our eye open for, for that kind of game. Who knows? Maybe Nemo's War will get us there, except we sold out through the print run so damn fast we didn't get a chance to talk to <laughs> bookstores. But that's a good problem, I suppose. But, yeah, you really have to identify the target market first, and then you have to figure out, can you reach that target market? And what is the unique selling point of this game? What is the game's hook? Why... Would people who either A, have you know 50 games of this type, this genre, why would they also have to have this one? What is different about this one that would make it just have to be their 51st game? Or B, if you were just had this game on a shelf and every other game was there in that game store on the shelf, what would make them pull out that box, turn it over, read the back, and against all those other games in the store, buy that game. What is your unique selling point? You have to identify it. You have to let the player know what it is and why it's cool so that they can decide, yep, this game connects to me. I, I want this game. Yeah, I think that's something so important, especially for new designers to think about. Like, no one has prior knowledge of your fantasy world that you've created. Like, so why, why should they care? You have to really give somebody a reason to care. Like you say, to pick up the box and look at the back and read it and look at the price and, and hold the box and go, does this weight of the box really line up with the price? Like to have them think about this, like you have to have something that's going to hook them in. But now connect all those thoughts with the development. So how, like while you guys are developing, developing a game, how are those ideas uh, really affecting your choices as far as what's going into that game? Well, um, you know, just like books, games rely heavily on fiction and nonfiction, and fiction outsells nonfiction, and the, the two big categories there are fantasy and science fiction. And, and most gamers can accept generic. They don't really need to know the story. They'll just say, oh, it's a science fiction game, mm -hmm. just like, oh, it's a science fiction book, you know, and they'll turn it over and they'll, they'll see what's on the back cover. So you're, you're okay with high fantasy and science fiction-y stuff just because it's such a recognized milieu. If you create some hybrid, uh, hybrid pseudo-monster science fiction historian, you know, then you're going to have a tough time explaining that. And um, because it's neither fish nor fowl, a lot of people will just put it back on the shelf. So you, you really want to have clear lines. And you, and you tell the designer... Do things what players expect mostly so that they recognize the bricks in the game and the mortar that holds them together, but then surprise them by doing a new, an old thing in a new way or something truly new that is learnable. Hmm. Everybody loves something new that they can easily learn and, and try and play. You know, when you um, when the Wii came out and people picked up the Wii moat and started playing, you know, tennis and stuff, uh, instant mastery because it was such a simple, intuitive system. If you can come up with systems like that where you don't have to be an engineer to learn how to make those systems work, you're going to be OK. You know, not new things, but in a new way. And the occasional new thing is good if people can learn it. 
Yeah. Do you also run into the situation, you know, when you're developing a game where the designer says, okay, this, this deck needs to be 300 cards and you come back and go, okay, for the price, we need to get that down to 220. Like, does that come up a lot? Yeah, maybe. I mean, if it's, if it's 300 cards and they can justify 300 cards, then we have to justify a price for 300 cards. You know, 300 cards weighs a lot, and there better be 300 reasons to have those cards. I mean, every card had better do something other than have, like, a number on it. Mm. You know, it, it better have a compelling reason to exist, a piece of art, uh, a title, uh, a mechanic, a system, something about that card needs to justify its existence in that universe and matter. Boy, it's it's tough to get people to whittle down components. But, you know, there there's the old saying, less is more. Uh, it's, it's really true when it comes to game development and publishing. How do we get the most out of everything we have? And often it's by cutting the extraneous and making people focus on the essential. Yeah. And now also, you, you know, you've mentioned you've switched over away from print on demand to the mass uh, printing of games overseas. How has that affected the development of your games? Cause now you got to think about, okay, how many of these games can fit on a pallet and can fit on a, in a shipping container, like all that. How has that affected your development choices? Well, I mean, when we started and it was pretty much just me doing all the graphics, all the rules, all the marketing and, and everything, but the manufacturing, my, my, my buddy uh, Vince Donardo did the manufacturing. I could take a game in, in a month, go from clapping eyes on it to having it for sale. Hmm. Real short line of communications when you wear every hat. Really short board meetings, too. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the fastest game I ever saw from clapped eyes on to ads up publishing and selling was 16 days. Wow. So, yeah, yeah you won't see that again. No. Now, you know, it's got to go through the layout and artists and inspections and printer proofs and turnarounds and everything takes a lot longer now so you you got to roll with that and it takes longer so more people more time so you got to sell more copies to pay the bills and it just it all spirals that direction so when you see a game you got to look and say okay what size print run can we justify for this game? And this is where Kickstarter has been really good to us. Um, and, and after so many Kickstarters, I, I'd like to think we're starting to get the hang of it now. Um, we just, like I said, completed our Kickstarter for Renegade. And we'll be sending all those files off to the printer probably before the month is out. That's really soon after the Kickstarter com is completed that the game is off to the printer. Yeah, We did Twilight of the Gods as our previous print start uh, print starter kickstarter and it is already in print it's been shipped it's at the warehouse and people are receiving theirs and now it's the new game at gen con we, we really wanted to get it out in time for gen con and by god we timed it almost to the day so who knows you know i mean if you really keep the fires lit under a game and hustle you know a half a year turnaround that's not too bad so and, with, and thinking about the, these timelines, have you noticed, because you've been in the industry a long time, have you noticed you know, a lot of change over the last handful of years as far as time in development where maybe people aren't spending as much time as they used to because they're trying to get games out so fast? Development time would be the most expensive thing if game companies really paid what it was worth. Hmm. Um, you have to get volunteer play testers and, and developers who are working for more love than money. That's for sure. Uh, even artists and stuff. You you gotta. You don't get rich in the game business, and if you're gonna work there, you gotta take the vow of poverty. <laughs> and every publisher enforces the vow of poverty because they have no money to change the vow of poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a it's a, especially in board games. It's a tough tough racket. There's got to be a lot of love there. And I mean, if you paid a developer what they were worth, you know, sixty, eighty thousand a year, forget it. You, you, you'd go broke in a minute. So yeah, that's that's just the tragedy of the small game company. Uh, I, I hope that Asmodee and, and all of their minions are making big bucks for for good quality game development. But uh, you don't get that from a small publisher, that's for sure. Games need a lot of development, but we 
substitute that with like a lot of love in development. <laughs> Making the game with love and, and hoping that that fills in the gaps, right? Well, if you if there's genuine enthusiasm with your designer and your developer and your testers, and and the, this is the game the artist wants to work on, and the layout people can't wait to make it look fantastic. You know, that's a big upward spiral. And then you can put it on, uh, give it to the marketing people, maybe put it on Kickstarter or whatever. If everything, you know, ticks up, that's great for a game. Everything ticked up with Renegade, everything ticked up with Twilight of the Gods. So we're, we're very happy with that. And now I'm, I'm working on our first monster-sized war game project, which is Frank Chadwick's Thunder in the East. And I'm trying to make sure that everything ticks up with that right now. It's in, it's in graphics and layout, and um, we've been developing that for four years now, something like that. Uh, every year at ConSim World, we would take over massive tables and get a bunch of people in and test the game out, and it has really come along. It's, if you remember the introductory war game Battle for Moscow, a little you know eight and a half inch by eleven inch map and forty counters. Mm -hmm. Thunder in the East is Battle for Moscow, all grown up. <laughs> you know, very, uh, you know, state of the art now. And uh, but, but the core engine, the move, fight, move game engine is right there. And the unit values are very close to what they were. The ground scale and the time scale is the same. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a real player's game. It's something a wargamer can teach new wargamers and uh, hand them a command and say, we're going at it, you know? Right. Now, what kind of advice would you give a designer whose game is with a publisher, it's going through development, what advice would you give to that designer? As far, you know, Be patient, obviously, is a big one. Be patient, but what else? What other advice? Be patient, but don't let the designer forget they've got your game. Probably ping them you know, every uh, month or two and say, is there anything I can do to get the, this back on track? Um, do, you, do you want me to help you find a developer? Uh, should I be thinking about uh, Kickstarter campaign ideas or accessories, you know, always be solicitous, be helpful. Don't be a nudge. Don't be annoying. <laughs> um, but, but let the publisher remember that he's got that contract and, and, you know, he, he wants to publish that game. And once, once things light up, continue to be solicitous, continue to be helpful. What is really tough is a designer who thinks, they wrote their game in stone instead of Microsoft Word. Mm -hmm. You can't change that. Don't touch that. Or they're going to live and die by historical research and try and make like the most perfect simulation or model of the, the novel as they can, rather than make a game that's fun. Yeah. You know, you're in the game publishing business. You, you should be making games first. If they have simulation value or historical narrative, that's fine, but they're a game first. If people wanted history, they'd read a history book. If they wanted fiction, they'd read a novel. If they wanted, uh, you know, a story, they'd watch a movie. You're making a game. And when you play a game, how compelling should it be? It's its own entertainment experience, and it needs to be entertaining and compelling as a game. So that's that's our philosophy. Yeah, that's a great point. And now, what about advice for somebody who's maybe just started their own small publishing company? What advice would you give them as far as the developing of, of their games? If you just started a small publishing company, oh, my God, kiss your nest egg goodbye. <laughs> um, yeah, there's an old joke. You know how you make uh, a small fortune in the game industry, and that is to start with a large fortune. Uh -huh. My The best advice I ever got starting a game company was, kid, don't quit your day job. It's it just the cemeteries are filled with dead game companies. I mean, really. Uh, if you go back over 50 years of game history and you do your research and see all the companies that started that aren't around anymore, their, their titles aren't published anymore, I mean, ouch. So keep your expectations in check. Let's start with that. I'll, I'll put it that nice way. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you've got to do basic publisher things. You've got to make sure that the numbers make sense. That when you get uh, the, a quote for a game from a printer, 
that you consider all the costs, including shipping and, and taxes and tariffs, duties and transportation uh, to and from here and there. There's all kinds of nickel and dimes that are going to get added to the cost for each game. And when you finally have that, you need to multiply it out depending on if you're going to sell it direct, depending if you're going to sell it direct to stores, or depending if you're going to sell it to wholesalers. Because every other person you bring in gets a cut and demands that the price be higher so that they make their margins as well. Right. So, and there's plenty of forums and boards and, and, and things like that who can help you with, with that sort of data. Stegmeyer, I think, is just like a genius. Yeah helping people with this stuff for sure i mean the guy is is a is a is an industry giant a hobby hero for all he shares and we've learned from him too bless his heart <laughs> so but yeah um know your numbers make sure you have a market don't publish a game that you don't know will sell don't publish it because it's cool or good Publish it because it's cool and good, and you know there's going to be a big demand for it. Mm. And that's just something you learn by watching what's going on, seeing what people are buying, taking your lumps. We take our lumps. We, we learn through our failures as well as our mistakes, and we had some classic royal publishing screw-ups, that's for sure. There are things we just won't do again now that we've learned, oh, don't do that. So, uh, like, make a bunch of miniatures. We are not a miniatures-making company. Mm -hmm. So we, we make great board games, and we put in fantastic gameplay. It's not about the miniature. It's about the gameplay. So we're going to stay focused on what we do best, that sort of thing. Yeah. And something, this is what you said earlier about playtesting, but I think it really has a lot of value here, is you learn more from observation than explanation you know observe mm -hmm. do your research ask questions don't think that you can just go in and explain things away like go, seek to understand before you seek to be understood that kind of thing and learn from the people who have made mistakes and that way maybe you don't make those same ones you know and any game you cannot sum up in one marketing bite-sized sentence is going to be trouble yeah it's a good point because now you're back to explaining you have to be able to roll something off the tongue and communicate that to the distributor who communicates that to the game store who communicates that to the customer. And it's got to, they don't have a lot of mind share. They're not going to remember a lot about every game. They're not going to remember three paragraphs of, of detail that you need to know to buy this game. Yep. A sentence, one bite-sized deliverable soundbite message sentence about that game. It's got to fit that way. For sure. Alan, do you have any kind of closing advice? Anything that just want to leave uh, the listeners thinking about? Here's something I've just learned. We were using overseas printers, and we're, we're looking for a good war game printer. Now, what's the difference is cut lines. Uh, you see a war game counter sheet. You see like a row of 10 half-inch pieces standing shoulder to shoulder. And the cut margins the, the, are very fine. Normal printers need a lot of interior space in a counter for their terrible, imprecise cut lines. But a war game printer can make nice, precise cut lines between the counters and not like cut up the art. But we didn't, we couldn't get our regular printers to, to make war game counters. So what I did was I went to all my buddies who publish war games and I said, guys, this is my predicament. Who is your printer? Can you help me out? And Oh, my God, a parade of hobby heroes went by offering me advice, introductions to printers. And now I have so many war game printers to, to look up and solicit and get bids from. Honestly, I was just choked up beyond belief. So my advice to a new publisher is other small publishers are not your enemy. They're your competition, but they're friendly competition. Talk to these guys. Make friends with these guys. Talk shop with these guys. They're not a bunch of, you know, uh, wearing a cape, uh, holding it over their trade secrets, twirling their snidely whip stacks, whips, whip lash mustaches, saying, yeah, you'll never get this uh, idea from me. No. We're a bunch of helpful, nice guys. We even play test each other's games. So that's the good thing about being a small game publisher. The other small game publishers, 
they're a pretty righteous bunch. And uh, when you're painted yourself in a corner, if you're humble and got your hat in your hand and explain what's messed up, they will help. And and that has been just a super blessing. Yeah. Of course, the bad part is, you know, trying to make ends meet, have a profitable game, understand your market, all that business and stuff. But the people are great. <laughs> Absolutely. And a rising tide uh, raises all ships, you know, so as, as we can bring more gamers in, hopefully we'll all, we'll all win in the long run. Absolutely. And, you know, it all depends on their, their first encounter with the hobby. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody puts out a crappy game and that's some here, uh, there's a retiree and they're looking for something to fill their, their newly won leisure hours. And they decide, well, you know, boy, I like games. I'll try this board game. And if that first board game is a real dog and it taxes them to death and they can't get any help and forget it. They're gone from the hobby. Had they stayed in the hobby and lived another 20 years, do you know how many games they would have bought over 20 years? But no, that first game turned them off. So life is too short for bad games. (laughs) It kills the hobby. It hurts the gamer, and the gamer is the most important thing. You got to make sure that you have put out the best effort, a great gameplay, an accessible game that's going to make the customer happy, that's going to make the friends they teach it to happy. That's what you got to do. And boy, every time you miss that, I don't know how many gamers we lose. I I would weep to think about all the first encounters that we lose forever, and now they're going to go off and, and go fishing or take a needle point or something that's just, they should they should be gamers so there you go yeah for sure well alan man really appreciate all the wisdom all the all the insight and just good luck with everything you got going on right now we're about to head over into a bonus round i'm going to hear from alan uh, about you know he's been in the industry a long time he's seen a lot of games i want to hear about the games he wants to see more of or the types of game or maybe mechanic or theme i just want to hear his thoughts on that and so we'll do that over in the bonus round but alan man have a good one and i uh, appreciate you coming on the show thanks so much gabe Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?